The most useful dimension of the Enneagram begins when we move beyond the typology and develop an awareness of how we interact with others and carry ourselves in the world. Aphoria wants to invite coaches, therapists, and organizational development practitioners in applying the Enneagram in areas of inclusivity, leadership, and team dynamics. Visit aphoriapartners.com for more information on deepening your knowledge and practice of the Enneagram. That's aphoriapartners.com or click the link in the show notes. All right, welcome to the official IEA Global Enneagram podcast. I am hosting today. I'm Milton Stewart. I'm a global board member, and I am super excited uh, for this episode we have coming up um, because we have Lucille from Euphoria, who is our honored podcast room sponsor for this year IEA conference. And so I am so excited to get to know you more, to get to know what exactly you do and just like all the amazing things and how you're connected to the Enneagram world within South Africa. So welcome to the show. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Milton. It's absolutely lovely to be speaking to you. The only downside is I wish I was speaking to you from the conference itself, but here I am in Cape Town, South Africa after some personal um, setbacks and changes. But yeah, I know that the podcast um, booth and everything that will be recorded in here will be absolutely amazing and a gift to all Enneagram practitioners and enthusiasts globally. Oh, that's awesome. And you know, I, s- some people told me, this is what I heard, some people told me you were a great interviewee. So I'm excited to see where this goes. So am I. So am I, Milton. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So tell me a little bit about Euphoria and um, a little bit about you. Mm, absolutely. So Euphoria, just to start off with, it's a, it's a strange word. It's a Greek word, just like the Enneagram. And it means sustainable human flourishing. So that's really at the core of what we do at Euphoria is to support the sustainable flourishing of human systems inside the broader ecosystems that we work in. Um, So we have two arms to our business. The first is more traditional consulting, leadership development, team development and coaching work that we do globally. And we've been doing that um, I have to do quick math here for about 12 years now. Um, And we have an amazing group of very experienced, very mature practitioners that all have two frameworks in common. The first is loving and working with the Enneagram. So we all work with the Enneagram. Mm. And the second is to work with adult development theory. And that's kind of the special mix that we bring to our work. We support... Uh, the maturation of humans and systems uh, through work with the Enneagram and related methodologies. And yeah, then the second arm of our business is an assessment part of the business. So we've developed the first global integrated tool that measures the Enneagram and stage of development according to adult development theory together. And it's Wow. Yeah, so it's it's an exciting part of our business. Our Enneagram questionnaire is quite special, I think, in part because it uses the structure of the Enneagram to do really effective and efficient measurements. So we get to Enneagram trifix type and instinctual subtype within 24 questions out of a question bank of more than 150. So it uses 
kind of machine learning um, and certain algorithms to get us there quickly, but it uses the structure of the centers to do that. And then we have a sentence completion test that measures stage of development. So we start some sentences, very mm. exciting, with things like freedom is, and um, mm. people of the other genders have it lucky because, and for me success mm. is, and when I'm criticized, and love and sex, and you just have to complete it. And then, so it's very, it combines kind of existential and sentences that have to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you complete it. And then in a combined effort between human markers and artificial intelligence, we get a sense of your stage of development, your range of development, and other cool things that you can then work with your coach or your practitioner on. Um, and that combination then, of course, gives you, for example, that this is a person who leads from Enneagram 2, who's currently in a post-conventional stage of development, and therefore, you know, they're already grappling with the integration of self and self-care in relation to, you know, the general helping behaviours of the Enneagram 2. And there's a different set of um, development suggestions and practices that comes from someone who's at a much earlier stage of development and only getting to know themselves and haven't grappled with the pride and the reasons for helping that yeah. a later stage two has. Yes. So that's what we Ooh. do. <laughs> Ooh, I have so many questions. I'm so fascinated. I, I'm trying to figure out which one I actually want to ask. How did, how did you get mm. into this? Because this is like the way that you all have combined all these things. This is amazing. How, how, how did you get into this? Yeah. Well, I mean, it starts with a funny Enneagram-based story, I think. So one of my, one of my colleagues um, in Euphoria, one of the other partners, Julia, many, many years ago, I think it's as far back as 2005, we were working together in another consulting firm. And um, she, she was already there when I joined. And she basically took one look at me and said, if you don't know the Enneagram, I'm not going to place you on any of my projects. Uh, guess her Enneagram style. She's an Enneagram 8. Um, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I was, and, yeah, I was thinking and that. I, um, I, I acquiesced. I thought, okay, yeah, cool. I know lots of frameworks. This is cool. Let me learn about another one. And then I met the Enneagram and it hit me right in the heart and helped me to completely see some of my own dysfunctional patterns, some of what I was doing to people I really love. And so I thought I was intellectually going towards a framework and then my whole being just embraced the Enneagram. Yeah, from there, it's been, it's been a love affair and at times also a little bit of falling out of love with the Enneagram, I must confess. And so I, I, was, in, <laughs> I was involved in the creation of another Enneagram questionnaire, left that project really went into a deep soul searching around how to work with the Enneagram. I think from a, from a less technical and more existential human-centered perspective, which is what eventually yes. brought us and Euphoria to the point where we started doing this work together. I think there's a, there's, there's a real understanding that if we, if we go towards the Enneagram and types are like placed in really small boxes where we almost have the stereotyped version of what, what a style represents. 
And we can, it's, I mean, some of that's quite funny. We can use those stereotypes to create really cool TikTok memes and like nine mm -hmm. easy ways of understanding how you travel or whatever it is. And, and I find some of those things right. funny, just to be clear. Um, but it also doesn't <laughs> tell the story over time because in having right. worked with lots of people in their journeys for long periods of time, there's a point where people go, okay, I'm supposed to be conflict avoidant. And right now, as an Enneagram 9, I'm the angriest person alive. What <laughs> does that mean? And how do you explain right. that? And does that mean I'm not an Enneagram 9? Am I on some other path? And so that's where bringing more adult development theory started really making sense for me. That, that's kind of what brought it together. And then I'm an organization development practitioner at heart. And so I've always worked in the place of transformation of systems as well. Mm. And, and I think that's also where I've seen a lot of pain. So what happens is an organization decides to implement some big strategic change. So for example, we're going to go from waterfall-based development methods to more agile development? Or we're going to change our manufacturing process to this fancy thing that we got from another part of the world? And then millions and millions of dollars get spent trying to technically change the organization. And it still right. doesn't work because somehow what's required mm -hmm. inside the humans is like that same kind of shift in maturity and upgrade in some kind of way. And if we try and do technical changes without supporting the human system to also figure out what that means. I mean, just going from a waterfall-based method where control is very, very central to how you manage things, to right. having to give up all of that control as a product owner, you know, or a business process owner is a massive leap. I mean, there's so many ideas of what it means to be a good leader and what it means to be effective that I need to shift and change that we can't just do that just like that. We need some processes right. to support that. And I think the Enneagram is incredibly helpful in helping people understand, for example, their need for control and where it stems from. Because as we know, there may be nine different reasons why we have this extreme need for control. But then organizations need some language around what is the system upgrade in the human side that's required next to the technical upgrade. And so things come together in that way. Listen, I am feeling all of this. I, uh, right now, I am, my brain is lighting up with fire. Like, even though it's like 2 a.m. where I'm at, I am loving this because, one, like, as the IEA board, we're constantly trying to be more diverse and inclusive uh, and create more spaces of belonging. And so as we try to transition and shift, everything you're talking about really aligns with what like we are working on doing, what we need to do so that we can't upgrade to be better. So I'm like, I'm loving this because it's so important to any and every organization as you want to shift and grow or move or whatever. Like, that is so impressive. My goodness. Oh, gosh, this is fascinating. Like, <laughs> so, you're doing... So maybe just to come in there, I'm so supportive of the shifts that the IEA board are making. And I think it's in many ways long overdue. We teach the Enneagram in a very different part of the world. We, we teach the Enneagram in sub-Saharan yes. Africa, uh, by and large. And obviously, we, we do some work in other parts of the world as well. For example, in the Middle East. 
So part of what we what we feel um, our essential work has been over the last number of years is to be very focused on finding the language, the narratives, the understanding on, for example, typical childhood patterns, um, even just the metaphors and the stories that are told inside the different Enneagram types, the exemplars that are being used that are more diverse and inclusive. The Global South is an amazing piece of the Enneagram story. I mean, so much of the Enneagram actually has deep roots inside uh, South America. But the, the honest truth is, if we take the dominant Western, very privileged, often very white narratives into sub-Saharan Africa, and we teach the Enneagram in the way that it should and can be taught in other parts of the world, it doesn't land. Yeah, it doesn't land at all. Yes. So we need to work on localizing, decolonizing the Enneagram in so many different ways and all the efforts the board are putting into just also changing the makeup of um, the board, the way in which it's communicating with the global community is really, really appreciated. Um, part of what we've done, for example, is we've focused in our questionnaire on translations that are first in the world. So we have some of the local South African languages that the Enneagram has never been translated into that we offer uh, our Enneagram questionnaire in. It's Kosa, Sesutu, We've started work on a Swahili translation as well. So it's really, it's, it's really an integral part of what we're doing and, um, and, and we're very, very supportive of what's happening at a board level. Can you share a little bit more about like the impact and how sharing the Enneagram in South Africa like looks right now and, and like where do you see it going? Mm. So... I think the Enneagram is something that is incredibly useful as a boundary-spanning technology, um, first and foremost, in programs and organizations that are trying to be more inclusive. So we have a history of being incredibly, incredibly divided as a country, and we still have laws that create deep segregation based on I mean, in South Africa, we talk race. I know in your part of the world, you talk ethnicity more, but race is the conversation we have. We're quite blunt in South Africa around these things. And what we find is that when you work with the Enneagram in a team that has a history of decades and decades of brainwashing into thinking and acting into difference based on race, and all of a sudden you get, for example, a young black shop steward and the supervisor in a mine, both standing on an Enneagram mat at Enneagram 8 and looking each other in the eye and going, oh, we actually have a lot in common and this is why we fight in similar ways when we're across the table, when we're negotiating. People just never go back, never go back because it's creating a sense of who belongs together and who is similar that cannot be seen and judged at the level of gender or skin color or anything like that. And it's incredibly powerful as a methodology for supporting um, just the start even of conversations around difference and sameness and who we are together. So that's part of, part of where the Enneagram is really significant. I think secondly... We've been really excited about the idea of 
decolonizing the Enneagram and bringing liberation ethics into conversation with it. So how does the Enneagram support us to, to really become ourselves and to, despite some of the larger systemic challenges, also find our agency and our voice within us and to validate mm. that? Um, so we work yes. a lot with the work of people like Steve Biko and Franz Fanon. Um, and Steve Biko, who was an important political icon in South Africa, but a deep existential thinker, said many very useful things. But he, he said, amongst other things, that what we need to do is to pump pride back into human beings that have become objectified through the system of racism and oppression. And today, that system of oppression is much broader than just racial. It's also a system of oppression that is yeah. economic, that's systemic. And so that idea of how we have become objectified human beings in this, you know, very capitalist, very liberal in yeah. some way um, society, if we want to claim back our agency, we need to... We need to find ourselves again, and that's a deep inner work. It's a deep inner grappling where we free ourselves mm. from the ways in which we've become objectified. So that's the second way in, in which we're working with the Enneagram in the space. And then just the translation of childhood narratives and getting, getting yeah. for example, a much broader understanding of how some... Enneagram 2 patterns are formed by having parents that are migrant laborers, just as an example, which is a very right. different story to the story that we just read if we read a more privileged, white, Western, fairly, you know, upper economic echelons kind of story of that. And so it's been incredibly empowering for humans to just mm. grapple with, oh, this is where it comes from. And I don't get that from just reading a typical Enneagram book. Uh, we need to hear each other's stories and that just creates deep empathy, care and love in the communities we work in. Any type of inner work requires the confrontation of versions of ourselves that may be uncomfortable or scary. Sarah Jane Case invites you into a poetic exploration of who you thought you had to be through her new book, The Enneagram Letters. You can find this creative approach to your personal development anywhere you buy books online or using the link in the show notes. Euphoria, you work in South Africa. You also said you did work in like the mid, the Middle East. How, how is that going? What are some of the differences you see and what are some of the maybe something aha moments that mm. have happened in like discoveries, I guess, that you all have had? Because you're doing some robust things with yeah. the Instagram. yeah. Um, wow. I think one or two ahas that has just informed how we work was a, a number of years ago, we, we do a lot of work in the mining and resources sector, right? And so there we, we're working with the salt of the earth, many people who are in positions of being cross-border migrant laborers in different ways. And we spent a lot of time in circle listening to people's stories of how they make sense of where their Enneagram styles come from. And that was a mm. massive aha for all of us as we continue to do work in that space, is to just understand how underrepresented some versions of stories are. So that's one of the big, big ahas. The second is how some specific instinctual subtypes are 
formed through interesting cultural dynamics. So let me give you an example. There are many examples of people that I've worked with where you get the social eight in a strong female leader who comes and who grew up in a very patriarchal society. So an example would be a very someone who's who's born in, into that Enneagram 8 uh, path and journey, but, for example, they live in the UAE in a very patriarchal Arabic society yeah. or a very patriarchal Zulu society, as an example as well. And so here's this interesting tightrope that forms the social subtype. is like, I am strong and assertive and I show up in the world in that way, and yet I'm a woman, so I'm supposed to know my place. And so I learn mm. from very early on to smile and wave when I'm in public and to kind of be an undercover Enneagram 8 because I've, if I was an open out there 8, I'd get into so much trouble inside the broader societal system. So I learned right. to mask some of that strength in a particular way that comes out when you touch my family, you die kind of circumstances yes, or right. <laughs> super protective ways of working, working with their teams. But it's really from, from coming to understand how some of those cultural influences also deeply influence some of the, the formation of instinctual subtypes. So, so that would be a, a second way mm. of doing it. And the third would just be, I think it's an obvious insight these days, but how important it is to find local exemplars. If you're working with exemplars in your teaching, if you're using music, if you're using, mm -hmm. you know, little clips from movies or whatever, you can't just go and get a bunch of stuff that's all American and pop it in there. It doesn't resonate, you know. So if, if you're going to work in Russia, you need to learn a lot about Russian music, Russian exemplars, yes. Russian pop music. And so it's it's like that kind of localization that's incredibly incredibly important in working with it and finding the metaphors and the stories that resonate across across cultures. Those things are so important into us being able to spread the enneagram globally and whenever it goes into a place I love how you talk about culture. This is one of the biggest pieces I think that is missing when we try to share honestly anything or when we're trying to especially share the Enneagram, understanding the cultural differences. And even with the Enneagram, and that's something that the IEA board, we've been looking at different communities like the the West, the, the US West is so individualistic in the way that we want to gather or what we want from a gathering. Whereas when it comes to maybe Spain, South America, Mexico, the culture is nowhere near as individualistic. And so it's more collective. So what they want in an event is going to be a different. So we're, we're working on really trying to learn, ask better questions, get more information so that we can serve better. So exactly what you're saying, I'm like, yes, yes, and more yes. So in the work that Aphoria is doing, you're doing, what has been like, maybe like the biggest challenge or a few challenges that, that, come as a part of the work that you're doing? Mm. Mm. I think, whew, I'll have to think about this for a while. What are some of the challenges that come from this? I think the first is that South Africa is an incredibly, if I just talk about our local work, is an incredibly 
multicultural world. And this is one of the, one of the um, mistakes I've seen some Enneagram teachers make as well here is some teachers come in from other parts of the world and then they come and they type the South African culture. And I'm like, which part of our culture are you typing? <laughs> because we've, got, we've, we've now added a 12th official language, which is sign language, but we've got 11 official languages and our 12th one as well. Our national anthem is Ooh. sung in five different languages. It's like we, we've, got, we've got such a diverse group of people from such diverse backgrounds that going, oh, South Africa is an Enneagram 6 culture is really, it's really a little bit rich because there are parts um, where we come together, which might be quite 6-ish, but it's definitely not the experience of, of that. And I think that's actually true in most parts of the world. We've had so much movement of people that even if you go into a country which you might think is fairly non-diverse, let's just for a moment go, you know, go into Finland or whatever, or Germany. There's been so many refugees and migrants coming into that society that just even thinking in a monocultural way around those societies is, is completely wrong because you'd be excluding large parts of the new German population or the new Finnish population in some kind of way. So for us, part of what is a wonderful challenge to have is to work yeah. in a place where, which is so multiculturally rich and what that means just for how you make up facilitation teams. So we never work in single facilitation teams. We work as pairs always, in part because we believe that mm. there is a massive amount of modeling and uh, working through whatever dynamics you have in the chemistry between co-facilitators that in and of itself is healing for the group to observe if you work together long term. But mm. even just thinking about how we make up groups that work with other groups is we need to be inclusive in the pairs of people that work together from a gender perspective, from a sexual orientation perspective, from a race perspective, from a language perspective. So, you know, getting the chemistry and the pairings of people that we send out into organizations, right, is a core part of our work. Um, and sometimes it's, it's challenging because we're sitting with a group of people where you have five different first languages and we might share English as a common language, but if we really want to tell our stories, then... It's harder to do that in a second, third or fourth language, which it is for some people. Right. Um, so that's one of the challenges, I think. The second challenge is a bit more universal. And that universal challenge is, I think, this modern organizational world is so time-obsessed that we're trying to do deep transformational work and... People are constantly trying to say, can't you do it in two hours? Or can't we just have a quick, you know, 30-minute conversation? And, right. and we all know, I think that's more universal, that the transformational process is something that you put on, on a slow burn and that needs time. Mm. You can't just, you know, turn up the heat massively and then, you know, bang, that's there. And I think the third challenge that I'd highlight at this point in time is the amount of trauma that's free-floating in systems and deeply vested in individuals. <laughs> we can't be Enneagram yes. practitioners now and not be deeply trauma-informed in what we're doing. Um, yes. 
because we can be part of re-traumatizing people. And in South Africa, we have layers and layers of this. I mean, we have, um, you know, something that we colloquially call load shedding, which is basically when we don't have, it sounds weird, but it's when we don't have power, when we don't have electricity. And we have not had a single day this year, I think, without at least two and a half hours of no power. And on some days, as much as between eight and 12 hours of not having power because of problems with our infrastructure. So that's like wow. layer one, which, right. you know, if you just think of the long-term impact of that, it's different depending on your level of privilege and what kinds of support you can get to generate your own power more locally. But even before we talk about long-term impacts of COVID, economic downturn, all of these things and very individualized context, we dealing with people that are constantly figuring out whether they're going to have electricity or not. And it's deep winter here at the moment. So, you know, we had what we call stage six load shedding on the coldest week of the year last week, which, which means that most mm. people didn't have power to heat up their homes for eight hours of the day. So mm. we have massive amounts of trauma in in our world and in our work. And I'm, you know, I think there's something about being trauma-informed and then there's something about also being willing to understand different ways of relating to trauma. And I'm a big fan of the work of Bayo Komalafe, uh, the Nigerian psychotherapist who, or I think he's talking about himself as a former therapist these days, about that idea of sitting, sitting in the opening that is created by trauma and mm. and finding different ways of working with the openings created by that that is that is not informed by even the western ways of of clinically thinking about trauma and making trauma putting it in a specific box and so we yes. we working generally in africa with m massive amounts of trauma as the rest of the world yeah. but it's it's deeply layered in context that is different to a more um, privileged developed context through a certain lens through another lens we might say that some yeah. of the the ways in which we we have developed in in Africa is just different uh, but there's a lot of trauma involved in yes oh. <laughs> okay. I'm going to have to even talk to you offline because everything you're saying is so incredible, what you all are doing. I am I am blown away, excited, grateful, thankful, like of everything that you all are doing. Mm, this is rich. All right. So, you know, this year our conference theme is Unite and Ignite. So how does the theme of Unite and Ignite uh, inform the work uh, that Euphoria is doing already? I mean, I think in many obvious ways <laughs> through yeah, what I've already I said. But um, I think the, the core thing for us is that from an existential lens, the yeah. place where we can unite is through our common humanity and our human experience and being able to meet each other human to human. And that means that we have to strip away so many layers that, that stand between us and our full human experience as, as fully, 
fully enlivened, ignited human beings. You know, there are so many ways in which culture, society, the algorithms of social media, our polarized world um, in terms of, of social political context as well, is keeping us away from meeting. And, and for me, there's this, this idea, the more polarized the world becomes, the, the more we need to really, in some way, create almost the, the, the estuaries where we can meet together. If you think about the one part of the, the polarized world being the salty ocean and another, the river coming down, that place, the estuary, where we can unite and be in conversation together in a way where we can listen to each other and we don't have to try and convince each other of a particular point of view. And it's not a, it's not a competition for who's right, whose perspective is right. Yes. But that place where we can sit, and this is where the African experience is useful, where we can sit together around the fire and be curious and open to each other's lived experience because contextually there's a reason why I feel this way and why I have these specific political and ideological perspectives. And I, I might not agree with them at all. And if I can't find the place inside me where I can sit around the fire with you and not try and convince you that you're wrong and I'm right, but just be curious and open and sit together as humans, yes. we're going to blow ourselves up as a humanity as the heat of the planet and yeah. the heat of, of what's happening from a climate perspective puts us more at more and more in op in potential competition with each other for resources. So we better figure out how to do that right now because time's running out and we're certainly not going to have help from a lot of the algorithms in the world that's trying to divide us more and more. So as humans, we are the igniting fire and we need to meet as humans in the flesh together to be able to, to stay connected as a humanity because there are big challenges that we'll have to face over the next two decades. And I, I, you know, I find it scary. I think we have no idea how troubled the world and the context is still going to become uh, from, from where we are now, which post-COVID, everyone's like, sigh of relief. You know, yes, economic circumstances might be really hard, but we're over the worst of it. I don't think mm. that that's the case. And we can't just all be billionaires escaping to Mars or something ridiculous like that. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I am so thankful. First of all, you're incredible. This was absolutely incredible. I hate to wrap this episode up, to be honest, because I could talk to you for like two to three, four hours. Like, mm. I hate that you're not able to be here because I am listening and I'm like, one, I'm resonating deeply. Mm. That's one of the biggest. I'm resonating so deeply and I'm loving that like Aphoria is doing this work, like not only in South Africa, but in other parts of the world because it's so needed. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I'm super excited about that. I'm, oh my goodness, over the moon. I'm gonna start doing some research. So how can, how can people find out more about Aphoria and mm -hmm. the things that you all are doing? Just put any tagline, anything yeah. that people, resources, Absolutely. Go ahead. So, um, first thing, check out our website, euphoriapartners with an S at the end.com. And there you'll find out more about our free group public supervisions that we do, our training that we do for coaches and practitioners in our tool, 
um, and some of the publications and things that we've put out. We have a booklet out on Amazon called Finding Ourselves, the 72 profiles, which is basically the Enneagram and adult stages of development and practices um, for that. So you can look, look that up as well. We have a YouTube channel where we post a lot of content that relates to mm. both the Enneagram, existential coaching and um, adult development. So go check that out. And Milton, just from my side as well, it's been fantastic to speak to you as well. And I'd love to hear more about part of what you're doing and what's lit up in you. So hopefully there's an opportunity for us to connect in the future as well. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Just one more time, just thanking you and and what Euphoria does for our our world. I, I don't really have the words to explain or express, one, how amazing I feel just listening to you speak and the work that you're doing. So thank you so, so much. Yes, we will find time to connect because we've got to learn more. We may even have you on the podcast again because the work you're doing is the true work of the Enneagram, which you were and you all are really doing. So thank you so much. And for everyone listening, everything we'll make sure is in the show notes so you can click on it. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Brilliant. Thanks, Milton. Yes. Yes, thank you.